Amen. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. If you would be turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, we'll be in verses 3 through 14 this morning. And uh, just want to remind us of a couple of things. This is actually part two of the sermon that Robbie preached last week as we're being called to be imitators of God. Robbie's sermon dealt with uh, our interaction with uh, friends and neighbors and fellow church members. So that's kind of, think of that as the externals, right? Uh, And this week, Paul's going to step on our toes a bit because he's going to talk about the internal aspect of things, which is really the right order, right? So one of the reasons that we read Psalm 112 as our call to worship this morning is uh, that it, it puts in right order and right circumstance the difference between the righteous and the wicked. And if you notice, it used the word desire at the end when it talked about that the desires of the wicked would perish, right? Well, that's actually a, a good thing that their desire would perish and that they would not, because it's, it's at the place of desire where all sin begin. In fact, James in James chapter 1 tells us this. He said, there's no sin that is born of, of God. It's actually born of your own desires. It's what you really want to do. It rises from within you. And too often, I think, we have an external perspective of sin as if it's something that's outside of us, right? Instead of taking ownership, no, it is you. It is exactly who you are in your brokenness, right? Uh, Righteousness does not come natural to us. Um, And no amount of good deeds on the outside is going to necessarily deal with the inside of the cup. And so that's why it's important that if we're going to talk about righteousness, that we not connect righteousness to the externals first. Now think about how Paul has already done that in this letter. What does he begin with? He begins with the imperatives, right? He starts telling us immediately what it is we need to do in Ephesians. No. What does he begin with? The indicatives of God's grace and peace to us. Remember, that's a big theme within this letter is that it's God's grace and peace extended to us that we're then to leverage for the life of the world in our various spheres of influence. And so while Paul last week talked about the externals just because that's kind of the easy stuff. That's the stuff you can see, right? It's, it's easy to be in unity with other human beings, right? Well, no, not, not if you don't have the internal aspect of things dealt with, and that's what we're going to talk about this week. But let me, let me start with a question. Um, how are you affected by what other people think? You're not, you're not affected by what other people think at all, are you? Because you're not on Facebook, or you're not on Snapchat or whatever the current thing is, right? You're, you're, you're not looking at the news. You're not being affected by decisions of ideologies of politicians and others, right? So you're not affected by what other people think, are you? Or the decisions that your family has made throughout its history. Or the decisions that your children are currently making based on what they think. No, you, you are, aren't you? Well, how about, how about this? Are you ever affected by what other people say? A word fitly spoken in due season is a very comforting and edifying and upbuilding thing, but also a word poorly spoken at the wrong moment can be a devastating thing. So something we as parents and spouses and friends and neighbors need to take further into account. It's something that I've really been wrestling with a lot as I've been studying the Proverbs in my own devotional time, how much it talks about speech and its power. We are affected by what other people choose to say and think. How about what they do with their own bodies? 
in the privacy of their own home. That doesn't affect us, now does it? And what people choose to do in privacy, that, that shouldn't have any impact on us at all, should it? Well, my story is deeply affected by the choices that my grandfather made in the privacy of his own sexuality. I'm not going to go into any kind of graphic detail or anything, so don't get scared. Like, the sermon's not going to go off the rails immediately from the start. But my grandfather was uh, an adulterer, and, and significantly so. I never saw it. I never witnessed it firsthand. I wasn't affected by the physical act itself. But I continue to wrestle with and try to come out from under the weight of his decisions. In fact, one time I took just a moment to count up how many people did my grandfather's decisions about himself in reference to, to other people, how many people did that affect? And I stopped at 75 who were not, not secondarily affected, primarily affected, one of which was a child that he had as a result of one of these, these affairs, that he never spoke to or had anything to do with that contacted me after he died. My grandmother was an alcoholic because of this. Don't, don't you think that affected me deeply? My father, my stepfather, had this ideology, which you may have heard of if you've read Robin Hood. You take from the rich and you give it to the poor. That's a wonderful way of thinking, isn't it? Except how he did that was he was a professional burglar. He burglarized people's homes. And what he didn't admit to is one of the reasons we were poor is because he and my mother had about, a, and this is not hyperbole, uh, they had about a five to $700 per day drug addiction. You do that math, over 365, we weren't poor. Nor was their stuff needed for our stuff and survival. But, it, but that was an ideology. That's the way he thought, and he justified that behavior. And you better believe it had a significant impact on not just me, but everybody. So what you need to understand, and this is where Paul is so gracious to give us the whole counsel of God's word. This is why we read Acts 20, 22 through 28. He didn't withhold any of it because it would have been so much easier to not get involved in people's interior lives, you understand. It's so much easier to just deal with the externals. Well, think about our culture. We're radical individualists. You don't tell us what, you don't tell me what to think. You don't suggest that anything is true to me. I'll decide. I am the, as Josh said, I'm the perfect arbiter of what's true. Yes, you who see through a glass darkly with all sorts of influencing things upon you right? You should be the arbiter. And you may say, well, what gives you the right to be the arbiter? Well, I singularly am not the arbiter. We are looking at God's word and seeking to triangulate that in the best sense of the word for you in the leadership cultivation course. Uh, we, we are seeking to triangulate that so as to know how to live. This is why you have to have wise counsel as you make these decisions. We need to be open and vulnerable, Right? But we don't want to. So this sermon is not going to be fun for a lot of us. And it's not just because it's me doing it, but because it's what Paul's telling us. And Christ wants not just the outside. He recognizes that if he doesn't have your heart, your behavior is of no value whatsoever. All right, so 
Here's what I want us to walk away with. We must, we must cultivate, uh, also cultivate the interior and personal aspects of our lives through thanksgiving and discern what pleases God so as to shine as a light for the life of the world. That's so critical that we keep remembering that how we think, how we speak, how we act, how we live these things out is not for us alone. You're a Christian if you proclaim Christ as your Savior and Lord, and your behavior, your thoughts, your ideas, your speech is affecting this world deeply. Your silence is affecting this world deeply at times. And so it's critical that we recognize that it's not just a few good deeds here and there. It's what's being cultivated when no one is watching It's what you are when only God can see you in the privacy of your home. It's what you are building in the dark that will be put forward in the light. And so Charles Hodge says it this way. He says, in the preceding section, which is what Robbie preached on last week, the apostle had spoken of sins against our neighbor. Here, from verse 3 to verse 20, he dwells principally on sins against ourselves. See, that's what's so interesting is, is that what you do in the privacy of your own home is oftentimes a sin against yourself, which is going to affect everyone around you. None of you hide it well at all. You think you do, but you don't. And so what we want to see is that not only were we separated from God, if we go back to Ephesians 2, we were enemies and he reconciles us to him. Not only were we separated from each other, further in Ephesians 2, he takes down the wall of hostility and restores us, We are also fractured from within ourselves. And if you don't recognize that the gospel also reconciles there as well, then the other two won't matter at all for the life of the world. All right, let's go to the text and see what it is that Paul's got to say to us as we are called to be imitators of God in Christ. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. All right, so let me say straight away, I don't like any of that any more than any of you do in some respects. In my, in my flesh, in my limitedness, and the things that it confronts, for those of you who know me, I am quick to laugh at things that I probably shouldn't laugh at. Those of you who know me, I am quick of wit and sharp of tongue. And that is not what I should be first and foremost, and that is not what I should be known for. I, like you, must be known for my thanksgiving of who God is. I must be known for recognizing where God is at work, not where sin and darkness are celebrated. I am to be known for being able to point out this is how God has been good. And so what Paul is saying to us is your interior life, that which you do in secret, 
It matters. The desires that you cultivate, the things that you fan into flame, that which you engage in, that which is primary to you, that which you are known for, it matters deeply. And we, if we were to approach this, think about if this is where Ephesians started. (laughs) I don't know that we would have read much more. So you cannot forget everything that he said prior to this moment. You cannot forget the necessity to bless God because he has redeemed you, because he has loved you from before the foundation of the world. You cannot forget that his love is so massive that you need the strength of the Holy Spirit to even begin to appreciate and comprehend it in any way, shape, or form. And you cannot forget this is a fallen world This is not neutral ground for all that is good and beautiful and is worthy of praise. It is still not yet where God longs to dwell openly with his people so that we could at last see him in spirit and truth. And so he begins by saying, listen, part of being an imitator of God is to make sure who you are interiorly matches who you claim to be exteriorly. Now, just in case you would say, well, Paul says all kind of crazy stuff, right? Can you trust him? Well, hold your place there and let's flip to Matthew chapter 15 and hear what Jesus has to say about this because I think it's important that we recognize Paul's not making this stuff up. Paul's not necessarily being a, 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 a joy killer. He's not interested in making our lives harder He's not interested in robbing us of any good that we could take out of this world. No, he's calling us to what Christ called us to be. Now, the circumstance here that Christ is engaging, if you remember, is it was on the Sabbath and his his people were hungry. Some of the disciples were hungry and they pulled some grain heads, which apparently is a no-no if Pharisees are looking. And they were, they'd also eaten with hands that were unclean. And so the whole thing was a mess. And the Pharisees were really upset about all this external cleanliness, which is a lot like us. It's funny, we, we charge people being Pharisees, but we're just like them in the sense that we really care far more about the externals than we do the internals. As long as I can fool you into thinking I'm a nice person and you don't ever cut me off on 92 when I'm headed to Woodstock, you'll never know what I really am. And so here he's addressing that their perspective and their focus on the externals is broken and wrong and going to cost them dearly. And we need to hear this. And we'll pick it up in verse 10. If you would, again, hear the reading of the word of the Lord. And he, being Jesus, called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. So that command is to you as well. So hear this and understand. That means you can't just hear it. What must you do with it? You're going to have to think about this some. You're going to have to apply it to your life. You can't just pass it over, right? You're going to have to wrestle with it. Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. Amen. As a man who loves chicken wings and all kind of stuff that ought to defile you something horrible, that's good news. Is it not? But when it comes out of the mouth... This defiles a person. So it's not what comes in. It's what comes out of the wellspring of your heart. 
So do you have the liberty just because you're keeping it 100? You're just, you're, I'm just being honest. You can say whatever. You don't have to consider the other person, their feelings. You don't, you don't have to wonder. Now listen, I don't live in a glass house here. <laughs> All the windows are broken. You don't have the liberty to say whatever you like just because you couch it as Michael Scott so beautifully did, with all due respect. You can't then say whatever you want, right? Just doesn't work that way. I've tried, trust me. And so he's saying what comes out of the mouth is really what defiles you. And then he goes further. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? The Pharisees were offended that he would suggest that it's what comes from within and not from without. Why do you think they were offended? Because they had some stuff to hide. See, they had, they had a good thing going. And Jesus was spilling tea. And he goes on. He says, He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted, will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. Hmm. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? That's just good biology. Hopefully. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart, listen and understand. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. Those are the words of our Lord that Paul is picking up on and saying here, if you want to imitate Jesus, which we're called to do, right? Since he is the, the manifestation of God in the flesh, he is God with us, Emmanuel. If you want to imitate Jesus, then one of the first things that you have to understand is the, the right order of things. Good behavior externally, faking it till you make it, is not going to get you anywhere. Until you're open and honest and vulnerable with who you really are, until you recognize that what comes from within is really who you are. I love it, you know, when you have an outburst, right? And one of the first things you hear people say, that, that's not who I really am. Oh, really? That's fascinating. Because the curtain got pushed back and you didn't have all your filters up, so that's crazy. It kind of looked like that's who you really are. And we would do well, actually, to own that. Not in a way that leaves us scarred and beaten and hopeless, but in a way that actually we can be set free, in a way that actually can lead us into the heart of the gospel itself. Because do you know that though no one else you think sees you in secret and in darkness, in the privacy of your own home, the privacy of your own thoughts, God does, and that matters. And that ought to be more impressive to you than, than you first heard it. Because some of you, it was like, ooh, that's not good. No, it's amazing. It's amazing grace. It's the peace that surpasses all understanding that even him knowing all of that 
And knowing it flat, here's what that means. He knows all of your sin, past, present, and future that is yet to come. And yet, he chose to love you and pursue you. That ought to cause us not to burst forth with filthiness and silliness and banality, but instead to be effusive in thanksgiving. And I'll just say you can't ever laugh at anything. No, it's not what I said. There's a right order here. And the right order ought to be that we are a people who have so meditated upon the gospel and understand who and whose we are. That for the life of the world, if I were to walk up and ask you, how has God been good? I would have to tell you, please stop talking. I've got somewhere to be. But that's not us, is it? That question I have witnessed on many occasions, and I'm not throwing stones. We're unpracticed at it because most of the time what we hear is, what, I need to ask for some stuff. Like, it's funny, we say prayer requests, and rarely does anybody think to say praise. Here's how God has answered these things. That's worthy of something. We immediately jump to supplication. What, what do I need God to do for me? And if you knew who you were and where you were, that also should be plentiful upon your lips because you don't have everything you need to make it most days, right? At least you're not aware of it. And so the prayer request that I'll always be there, that I could sneak up on you and jump out and ask, and you, even in horror, be able to say real quick, is, Lord, help me to see where you're at work. Help me to join you in that work. Instead of, hey, God, why don't you do some stuff for me? And by the way, don't, don't bother me about this other stuff. Just, just do some stuff for me, and maybe, just maybe, I'll throw you a little pittance every now and again. We have to be careful that that's not our heart to the Lord our God. That we recognize with great gratitude what it is that he's done for us. That's why Paul spends so much time in the letter of Ephesians unpacking what that's about. You have to go back and read chapter 1 again and again and again as we go through this in order to be able to appreciate what he's saying to us here. So what you do... What you decide to do in your radical individuality has an impact on everyone around you. Whether it's because it causes you, and this one we don't think about, one of the great ways that it actually robs people around us is we don't have thanksgiving fast upon our lips. We don't have words of encouragement to speak quickly that people so desperately need because remember the honesty of Hebrews. Are there times where it looks like Jesus is not on the throne? Are there times in your own life, not just in the world, but in your own life where you're wondering, God, where are you? Did you let go of the handle here? Have you forgotten me? Have you forsaken me? And we need so desperately for those around us to be able to speak quickly to the goodness of the Lord our God to his active working. We need people who can witness it in our own lives, but you got to be close enough, vulnerable enough for them to be able to see how God is affecting you. And too often, because we got stuff going on in secret, we're not letting anybody get close enough to be able to say that to us. So you're robbing yourself of one of the single greatest resources, the power of the Holy Spirit, and Christ has left to us. 
This is why the letter of Ephesians has spent so much time talking about unity. We have to have community around us. We have to have people who can bear witness and testify to the goodness of God that we've gone blind to or that we can't see or hear for some reason. We have to love each other enough to be able to say those kind of good things or even more important, to be able to point out something ain't right. Because again, remember, I am a terrible mortician. I can pronounce it dead, but I can't bring it back to life and I can't make it mean anything as a mortician. But if you give me the opportunity as a physician, ER doc, long-term neurosurgeon, whatever it takes, and I don't say this in arrogance, this is calling. I am much more gifted there. And you are too. You have access to all of the heavenly blessings while it's still alive. When it's over, when it's called, when it's done, it makes it much more difficult for those things, the, the light to break into all that darkness. And so it's critical that we recognize that Paul's talking about this not just for you, but for the life of the community around you. The other way in which we rob ourselves of the great blessing of community is we withdraw. When you've got stuff going on, you do it subtly, right? You, you don't show up a couple times, and when you don't show up, you're like, hey, uh, y'all got any prayer requests? Wink. Like you're doing something. And then it slowly it starts to just matriculate on out. Right? And you're like, who, who cares? Those people don't care about me. We're terrible at being friends, by the way. We do a terrible job on, on, on the whole most of the time because we've let so many things cut us off from each other. And so we're kind of half in and half out. Do you have any idea of the impact of that? If, if, if the Bible's true, and I think it is, then every single one of you who claims to be a Christian has a gift. If you aren't here... How can you use that gift for the life of the church, for the life of the world? Now, here's where radical individualism slides in. I can be a Christian anywhere, dude. I think I'd be a Christian in the middle of the church. Yeah, but this is how God set it up. I get it, right? It'd be a whole lot easier if we didn't have to triangulate all these personalities, trust me, right? If we didn't have to kind of accommodate and, and try to think through and, and deal with and try to love when it's hard, and rejection and all, and try to read between the lines that people give us because they just don't, they don't really want to tell us the truth. And we don't want to tell them the truth either. But this is the way that God said, I want it done. It's in and through the work of the church for the life of the world. And yes, it is messy. And yes, we're going to fail you just like you're going to fail us. But it's in grace and peace that we can continue on. Amen? And so... When you divorce yourself from the church and you act like, and think about this, think about the impact it has on your heart to, to say, well, I, you know, I mean, other people need to be there every week, but not me. I, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I got it going on spiritually enough. I can, I can listen to podcasts. I can, I can, you know, I can bounce around from church to church. I don't actually have to be accountable or known anywhere. I'm sorry, run that past me again. You need to think about that idea that it's having an impact on you and your family and everybody around you. And I get it. The church, oftentimes, universal, she's a mess. 
And we've hurt some people and we've made it hard. But when it's done in the glory of the gospel, to the glory of Christ, to the joy of its people, it is a beautiful thing. And it actually does some things for the life of the world. And so this is what Paul is saying. And he's saying, don't get this twisted. Don't get this twisted. If you're going to have your identity be, I'll decide who I am. God doesn't decide who I am. You will have no part in the kingdom. You, did you, I didn't just say that. Paul said it very clearly. If you're going to identify yourself based on your set of preferences and private ideas, fine. That is all you are going to have. You will have no place in the kingdom. Jesus said it too. So it's not just Paul. And he also said, don't let anybody come along and twist those words. We're doing it in our culture right now. Right? With this crazy whiplash. A four-year-old can decide what he or she or it is. But Jeffrey Epstein is a monster. He is. Because he preyed on those children. So wait a minute, why, why is this idea over here not equally devastating to the mind of a three- or four-year-old, but this idea over here is. How do, how do we reconcile that? How do, how do we reconcile the unborn don't matter, um, but, but the ideas and opinions of the born do, as soon as they can be cognitive? That's it. Something's wrong in, in, our, in our, how we're putting this together logically within the same camps. Now, again, all I'm pointing out, I'm, I'm making no, well, kind of, some value judgments on some of those, if not all of those things, but pointing out the radical inconsistency. And do those ideas have consequences? You better believe they do. Wait a minute now, that's just a personal decision in all these cases, right? Personal decisions. Well, in, that, in that one case, no, no, those personal decisions, they, they were bad. All these other cases, they're good. How, do, how does that work, actually? And so, for the life of the world, we have to be a people who, whose hearts and minds are transformed into the image of Christ, whose desires are shaped by the Word of God, whose desires are shaped by the person and work of Christ, and who consistently understand that the obedience that we are called to cannot rise in your own Herculean strength. It can only rise from a transformed heart and mind. And that you can't, you can't do any of the things Paul's talking about if Ephesians 1 and 2 aren't true already. They don't make you a better person to have good ideas, right words, and all those kinds of things. What they should be, our obedience is to be evidence of who we already are and who we are becoming in Christ. They're to be reflective. And what we do in private matters. It has an impact on every single person around us. What we do in our radical individuality doesn't just stay there. It affects every single person around us. Hear what uh, Stephen E. Fowle says about this portion of the text. He says, The antidote to all of these destructive patterns of behavior and speech 
listen, is not renewed focus on improving interpersonal relations. So if you're thinking, all right, I'm going to fix this with behavior. I'm going to fix all this internal stuff. I'm going to try hard enough. I'm going to focus hard enough. No, that's the wrong place to start, according to Paul. And Stephen Fowles picked up on it. Notice what he says. But thanksgiving to God. The place for us to begin to long for obedience and change is to recognize what God has already done, not what we haven't done or what we will do. That's the primary starting point. And from there, what we have done will thunder no more. And what we will do will rise from a place of humility and gentleness and love for the life of the world. He goes on to say, there seem to be several respects in which this might be so. For example, each of these vices in one way or another reflects a level of disorder in one's desires and loves. Thanksgiving reorders a believer's loves so that they are focused on God. Further, cultivating the habit of thanksgiving also enables believers to love others in God properly. Thus, focusing believers' attention, thankfully, on God can also enable believers to apprehend their neighbors with the love God commands them to show. It is out of our thanksgiving, and that's what we talk about so often here. Use the Lord's Day Sabbath as at least a weekly opportunity to develop the habit on the Lord's Day Sabbath. For those of you not familiar, that's just Sunday for us, right? Sunday shorthand for Lord's Day Sabbath around here. And so... Make it a practice to gather with your family, gather with friends, gather with neighbors and say, all right, how's God been good? And some version of that question. Because again, and, and notice that when you struggle, that is, that's actually, that's telling you something. What is it telling you? You're broken and ain't worth nothing. No, that's not what it's telling you. What it's telling you is this is something worth fighting for. That would be C.S. Lewis's perspective. Anything that's, that, that's actually hard in the Christian life probably points to its value. And so don't fret at your inability to see. If you don't have anything, then the thing to do is, all right, let's pray for the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Because I'm missing it. I'm not picking up it. That's a good confession, by the way. And would that we would be trained to not just see it in our own lives, but what a gift it is to be able to see it in the lives of others. That's one of the great joys for me as a pastor is to be able to see the ways in which God is at work in the lives of other people and the ways that he's blessing them. And so one of the things we have to do first is name things. So it might be worth your time, not the Lord's Day Sabbath. This is a Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday affair. But what sins do you most frequently commit against yourself? What ideas, what private things, what things are actually drawing you away from being able to see the goodness of God? And then do you recognize the impact of those things that, that it's having on the people in your various spheres of influence and at church? Is it drawing you out of community instead of calling you into community? Is there not enough evidence to not be in community? Is there not plenty that would say, this is way too hard? That's just shooting fish in a barrel. 
but to deal with what it is within you that's actually drawing you away from it. Well, now that's a different matter altogether. That's the plank in our own eye. And then, what are you doing to cultivate the interior and personal aspects of yourself in Christ for the life of the world? I've been doing this for a long time. Not, not this part, but I've been doing discipleship, meeting with people. Uh, I've been in community. Susan and I have fought for community. We've stayed at churches way past. Um, this isn't, there's not a resignation coming. Let me just say that right now. <laughs> Let's get that out of the way so you're not like, well, what's the fix now? Where even Susan, who is, I would say, mild-mannered by comparison at minimum, would turn to me and say, please tell me this is the last Sunday. Please tell me this is the last Sunday. And I would have to say, no, the Lord is not done teaching us what he has to teach us yet. And so you're going to have to fight for it sometimes. And so, so, so often, I think we got a lot of quit in us. We do. I do too, by the way. I'll quit on something in a heartbeat and justify the mess out of it. I'm good at that. I'm not saying it's good, me being good at that. But what I have seen is those who hang in, those who are honest, those who are confessional, those who recognize it's a long obedience in the same direction and you're not going to get anything good out of the immediate, they do really well over the long haul. Those who bounce from thing to thing looking for whatever spiritual hit or high they're looking for don't tend to benefit much at all, if, if, if any. And I can say that those places they bounce around to don't benefit at all from their presence. Really. And so I'm not throwing stones at you as much as saying, if you want to make a stand, make a stand somewhere. Doesn't have to be here. Maybe we're not, maybe we're not the crew for you. I get that. Not every place has enough chairs to fit everybody. And we're not willing to do 18 services. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I don't know about Robbie and them. Uh, and, so, and so I get it, but, but if you need to make your stand. You need to commit to something where you can grow because it doesn't happen any other way. Not bouncing around. Not half in, half out. That's one of the great difficulties. Almost everybody who's left this church, I could see it coming from a mile off, right? They're hardly, they're hardly ever here, and the first thing they say is, well, I just don't feel connected. Huh. That's interesting. I get it. If you're not going to be here, you're not going to feel connected. And because the way we preach through sermon series, if you're not growing with us in this stuff, you're not maturing with us as a group, I get it. You feel left out. Natural. That's just natural. But you need to ask if that's good and that's healthy for you and for who it is that God's calling you to be. If you would turn back to the text and let's look at what God is calling us to as we finish up. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness. I love that. Not you were in darkness. There's no, they didn't miss something in the Greek. No, you were. It wasn't external to you. It is what you were. 
That's really important because we like to think, kind of see ourselves as neutral and stuff's being imposed upon us from the outside. We're powerless to it. No, you just give it, as James says, you're just doing what you wanted to do in the first place. Okay? And that's important for us to admit and remember. You were darkness, but now you are light. You're not in the light. You've now become light. In the Lord, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, which is why what comes out of our heart is so important. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible, this is really important for you to hear this, is light. I want to pause here for just a second because some of y'all heard, we need to be exposing some stuff. Right? I'm glad Cameron said that. I'm going to start telling on him. I'm going to put it on Facebook. Now remember, the Pharisees also had this idea in John 8. They exposed something. You remember they found the woman who was caught in adultery. By the way, I don't know how you do adultery by yourself. So I'm not real sure where the man was because the law says he should have died too, by the way. But they didn't drag him to expose him. They took her and exposed her. And what was fascinating is what did they actually expose? That they were the darkness. And Jesus was the light. And notice what he said to her. He said in the equivalency, go and walk in the light or sin no more. Right? So this is not telling us, go around telling on people, catching people, and causing problems. Being a rat, as it were. Ratting people out. Because everybody loves them, right? Uh, high school students. How many of you absolutely love the people who tell on you? Right? They're your best friends. You're just like, you're doing such a service to me. I love you. <laughs> or a sibling who calls you out at the key moment. Right? Just endears you. You're like, oh, God sent you, appointed you a messenger. I'm like Shemamiah, you're so good. No. Notice what he said. If you expose it, what does it do? Makes it visible, but then most importantly, what does it become? It's redeemed, which is why he quotes, we think, a version of Isaiah 60. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We're not, as Christians, we're not to be going around telling people they're horrible and they're, they're, they're foolish and they're worms and all this kind of stuff. No, what we're to do is show them, expose to them a better way. A life more abundant in joy and thanksgiving and goodness and all that comes from the heavenly blessings. Think about how neighboring that way changes things. Think about how loving your family that way changes things. Think about how being a part of those kind of things in community, in vulnerability, it changes things. So please don't hear Paul as saying, go around telling on folks and making folks know, making sure they know how really foolish and broken they are. No. Show them instead how they can be alive. Because 
Do dead folks respond to anything other than resurrection? They don't. You're beating your head against a wall, telling most of them that their behavior is bad. Instead, calling them to a newness of heart and life and mind. We're to be sharing the gospel with each other, not our sins and brokenness. We're to be sharing the thanksgiving of God with each other. And not all of our internal strife and ideas about why this, this world is broken. Really, honestly, there's nothing new east of Eden. There really isn't. And I know we think it's worse today than it's ever been. Maybe. It's as bad as it's always been. Anybody do any reading on uh, America 1890 to 1920? Those are enormous atheistic outbreak, enormous sexual revolution that went on that we don't think about. Below the gift of the Great Depression and World War I came. And the gift of World War II came. So that all of a sudden, we decided to take internal stock of ourselves, which lasted nah, about five years. You remember there was another revolution that hit 55, 60, into the 70s. And then your welcome, postmodernism came in, of which I am numbered, so that you couldn't believe in anything because nobody knew it was true. I don't even know how we understand words. So we've been doing this for a minute, right? We've been doing, you, French Revolution, read anything in history and you'll see the patterns are very similar. We're just convulsing, trying to break from the grip of God in any sort of individualistic way that we can and not have to deal with who we really are because we're scared to death of our mortality. We're scared to death of our frailty instead of seeing those limits as gifts from the Lord. We're scared to death to be in the light because we feel that if somebody actually knew who we really were, they wouldn't like us. As if that's the most important thing in the world. As if you not needing desperately someone else's affirmation doesn't make you unlikable. Right? Who doesn't love that friend who constantly needs affirmation and nothing is ever enough? That family member spouse, a child. So we are a gift to others when we find our rootedness in union with Christ and we can give away to help them see this is the way. We are the light. Christ is our light. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says about this. He says, the gospel of light produces fruit. Its effects appear with spiritual naturalness not by artificial forcing or feeding. Do you hear what he just said? The gospel of light produces fruit just by nature of you being in it, right? John 15, if you abide in Christ, guaranteed God will bear fruit. It's the abiding in Christ part that you have to take into account. Scatter, water, it's God who gives the increase. That's really important for us to remember. By contrast, darkness produces works, effort, toil, sinful striving, sin at the end of the day, exhausts, and then it kills us. It, it, um, it is unfruitful. It produces the body of death and destroys the soil in which grace and lasting pleasure grows. So what rhythms of life Habits and actions have you discerned to be pleasing to the Lord? He's made it clear in Scripture what is pleasing to him. 
That, it's, not, it's not a riddle. It's not in Obadiah. Uh, it's not hidden somewhere out of sight. You don't have to have a seminary degree to understand that what pleases him is for us to walk in newness of life and to be in his presence. That's the meaning of what it means to be blessed. It's what it means to be righteous, actually. It's to be able to stand before him clothed in the finished work of Christ. What did you do for any of that? Nothing. So what rhythms of life, habits, and actions have you discerned to be pleasing to the Lord? And how are you using them? Because it doesn't come natural. It just doesn't. And the tyranny of the urgent, which is everybody's life. I I love when people say, if I can just get to here, I'm not going to be busy anymore. (laughs) We're empty nesters. We're as busy as we've ever been in our whole lives. It takes hours to cut my grass, not just because my lawnmower was broken and I did it with a weed eater one time, which was awesome. Taught me a lot about myself. It, doesn't, it never changes. It doesn't change because life is full of things. It's not become easier to read my Bible now. It's not become easier to pray now. I don't have this cachet of time like you may think. And you won't either. So you have to, you, it has to become priority. It has to be built in somewhere. And you've got to deconstruct all the weird stuff you have as you think about that. Well, if I can't do an hour, I'm not doing anything. Well, that's foolishness. You've got to start somewhere. Habits form by starting somewhere. And so if you don't have habits to this end for you to walk in the light, they're not, they're not just going to up and rise. And so what was the purpose of Christ being our light? Well, it's to redeem us, not to harm us. Remember that. And what is the purpose of our being light in the world? To grant it newness of life, to grant it hope. My neighbor, <clears throat> Arlene, came over and she said, uh, hey, I, I want to start a prayer meeting in the neighborhood. And, uh, and since you're a pastor, I, I'd love for you to be, be part of it. And, and, uh, and she said, you know, I, I just, and I love the way she put it. She said, I just think that we, we have the perspective of hope that people so desperately need. And they don't need us telling them what to, what to think and what to vote for and all these kind of things. We need to just be a presence that teaches them, shows them where hope can be found. And I told her, I said, well, uh, you don't sell houses for free, so are we going to pass an offering plate, or how much I'm going to get paid? No, I'm kidding. I didn't say it. I said it, but it was joking. Uh, <laughs> and she got it. Arlene's, Arlene's a Christian. She, she gets the joke. Uh, I love that about her. But what an amazing thing that she's trying to think about, how can we love our neighborhood in hope? How can we provide hope, right? And we ought to be doing the same thing for the life of the world because we have all of the heavenly blessings in heaven set aside for us in clear, easy, everyday access. So what do we learn, at least, uh, from a couple things from Ephesians 5, 3 through 14? It teaches us that we are to cultivate the interior and personal aspects of our lives, and we're to do that through thanksgiving. So you've got to practice becoming grateful, right? Almost every circumstances where marriages are going bad, where, where people are coming off the rails, one of the things you will note, and I have noted, is there's no gratitude whatsoever. It goes out the window. There's also no laughter whatsoever. I think they're connected. 
And then we are to discern what pleases God so as to shine as a light for the life of the world in all the spheres of influence where we're located. So what a, what a great gift that we're not called to do this on our own or in our own strength, that we have a community of people that can help us to do this, that creatively we can walk alongside, that can also give wise counsel, that can know us enough to see when we're starting to come off the rails so you can get to a physician instead of being dealt with by the mortician. So my hope is, is that that's who we would continue to become. As Josh said earlier, are we, are we going to just be that? All right, everybody, let's just be it. Hold your breath real quick. And when you breathe, we're just going to be it. Wouldn't that be easy? Wouldn't that be nice? Now it's going to take work. It's going to take hard work from all of us. And so let's put our hands to the plow and not look back for the glory of God and the sake of the life of the world and do that in union with Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us enough to give us the whole counsel. Well, what you have said to us this morning can be a hard word as we love our liberty. We love the freedom to be whoever we want to be. We love the right to be able to say, this is what I will do with my mind, my body, my heart, my soul. And yet, as your Proverbs, Proverbs 16.2 tells us, to every person, their way seems right. But it's you who will judge the soul, who will weigh the soul. So let us recognize in great fear and awe and reverence that your grace and peace have come to us in Christ and that we would not forsake that and we would not forsake the opportunity to offer that to all those around us through word and deed. Father, would your Holy Spirit bring to our minds this day things we should be thankful for? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear where you are at work all around us. Help us to, to speak edifying and encouraging words to each other by being able to point that out. This is where I see the Lord at work in you. Help us to not grow weary in doing good. Help us to be a community of people that is hospitable and loves deeply. Help us to grow and mature to the fullness of the stature of Christ from the inside out. God, help us to walk in the light, to be light, to bring redemption, to say that to those who are dead, awake, O sleeper, for Christ, our light shines upon you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.